Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The COVID-19 pandemic has seemingly touched everything in education policy, and school choice is no exception. Since the start of the pandemic, and particularly in the 2020-21 academic year, over a million students left their traditional public schools. Charter school enrollment surged, and state after state either increased or created new school choice programs. The growing enrollment and expansion of these programs over the past year has led some to call 2021 the year of school choice. So why was school choice so popular this past year? And what did its rise look like? Here to discuss that with me is Nina Reese and Patrick Wolf. Nina is the president and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Previously, she served as the first deputy undersecretary for innovation and improvement at the Department of Education. And Pat Wolf is a distinguished professor of educational policy and the 21st Century Endowed Chair in School Choice at the University of Arkansas Department of Education Reform. Nina, Pat, welcome to the report card. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. So let's start at the top level. The top line patterns of growth and how COVID has played into those over the past year. Rest assured, we'll delve into the details a little bit more later. So, Pat, can you give me a 20-second version describing the growth we've seen in private school choice over the past year or so? And generally speaking, how has COVID played into that? So, Nat, in 2021, 19 states enacted new private school choice programs or expanded existing programs. That includes three states that are new to the private school choice group. Um, Those states are Kentucky, Missouri, and West Virginia. And West Virginia even enacted the first universal school choice program uh, eligible to every student who is attending public schools currently. So this was a big year for private school choice. And I suspect that the pandemic played a very strong role uh, in encouraging parents to demand more control over their child's school and more of an ability to customize their child's education to meet their needs. All right, Nina, same question to you when it comes to charters. What kind of growth have we seen over the past year or so? And how much of that would you say is associated with COVID? Well, Nat, thanks again for having me on your podcast and uh, for hosting such a topical discussion. Uh, This is going to be a very um, robust year when it comes to charter policy and politics, as we saw last year. In terms of growth numbers, we released a report last fall uh, that looked at um, the growth of charter schools in the 2020-21 school year. And we discovered that 240,000 students enrolled in charter schools, while 1.3 million students left the district-run system. Um, So our numbers went up dramatically, and uh, we don't have numbers kind of compiled for this this school year yet, but we anticipate that a lot of those numbers will hold uh, because we've seen a lot of news stories in various places like Indianapolis and other jurisdictions that indicate the numbers are not just holding, but the growth is continuing. Um, And so in terms of legislative activities, we also saw record numbers of activities last year in every state where the governor or a majority leader in the either house had an opportunity to do something around school choice. Charter schools uh, were 
on the menu. So we saw huge improvements in the Iowa charter school law, which had kind of hit a wall uh, for a good bit. Uh, I know there are also private choice efforts in other in places like Iowa that were being discussed. Um, we saw improvements in the charter law in West Virginia. Uh, we saw efforts in Ohio. In Ohio, now you can open a charter school uh, throughout the state. It used to be you could only do it in a few communities. Uh, in those instances where the governors also had control of additional funds um, because of all the relief funding available at the federal level, uh, they also did a lot to benefit charter schools in states like Tennessee, for instance, Florida, um, South Carolina, and elsewhere. So uh, we saw, again, every state that had a friendly governor did something positive. And interestingly enough, in those places where you don't have necessarily a pro-charter legislature, legislature, the sector was actually able to keep bad things from happening. So uh, one example is Rhode Island. Uh, it's a blue state. And there was an attempt at putting a moratorium in place. And uh, thankfully, we have a governor, a Democrat, who supports charter schools. He even testified against that moratorium, and uh, we were able to keep that moratorium at bay. So um, a lot of momentum, and I think this coming year will be interesting in states like Virginia, where we now have Governor Youngkin as governor, who has pledged to open 20 charter schools. And I think his message around choice and empowerment will be an interesting one to watch and, quite frankly, to see if other governors and other uh, lawmakers emulated. And certainly, if he's successful, there's more uh, momentum behind those types of activities. So both for charters and private school choice, we've seen moves forward and uh, maybe forestalled some steps back. Let's wind the clocks back a little bit, right? So if this past year was sort of a banner year for charters and private school choice, what were the years sort of leading up to it? I mean, are we seeing a major increase in growth, or are we just carrying forward with the same sort of pace? Pat, let's start with you. So, Nat, a couple of years ago, uh, private school choice uh, development and spread was, was starting to plateau. It was getting tougher for advocates to bring new states into the school choice fold um, and to uh, expand existing programs to the extent that they that they wanted to. So there was a sense of a, of a bit of a stall, uh, but that all changed with the pandemic. Uh, there definitely was an increase in momentum for uh, for more programs uh, to be to be launched, and um, you know the arguments, the typical arguments against private school choice made by defenders of, of the educational status quo just, just didn't resonate with parents and lawmakers as much during the pandemic because you know, the parents were seeing that in many cases, their children were not being adequately educated uh, with district-led remote instruction. Um, they were desperate for alternatives. Uh, the private schools opened uh, more quickly and more consistently than the district-run public schools in most parts of the country. And it really defanged uh, a lot of the arguments against school choice that are typically made in, in state legislatures and, and, and gave momentum to uh, new enactments and, and expansions. All right, so an increase for private school choice programs. Nina, when it comes to charters, how does the recent growth compare with sort of the pre-pandemic years? 
That's a great question. So like uh, what Patrick just mentioned vis-a-vis -vis the private choice movement, uh, we had seen a plateauing in terms of the number of charter schools that are open that were opening around the country. The total enrollment rates have actually continued to go up in the existing schools. Waitlist numbers also continue to go up. But in terms of the sheer number of new schools opening, those numbers hadn't gone up in a few years. Uh, so again, we, we don't have the data yet to, to see if the uptick in enrollment uh, was correlated with an uptick in new schools opening. I suspect not very many new schools opened because of the pandemic and you know procurement and being able to get facilities and whatnot. Uh, but the changes that we saw, the legislative changes that happened last year, and certainly the things we're going to continue to see this year, do point in the direction of the need to open more schools. And I certainly think that because some of these efforts are targeted at suburban and other areas outside of um, center cities where chartering had traditionally grown, we will potentially see a growth in the sheer number of charter schools around the country. Um, and, uh, but, you know, look, one of the things we also discovered is just the, the, the fact that for a very long time, we have focused all of our energy in mobilizing parents and influencing lawmakers in certain jurisdictions. And for the first time, the families who were disenchanted with the public school system were those in these settings that, you know, traditionally we haven't paid attention to in places like Fairfax County, which is where I live, which has a seemingly great public school system, a very well-funded public school system. Parents move to this community in order to send their kids to these public schools. And so it will be interesting to see if the disenchantment that these families felt can be translated into something positive when it comes to charter schools uh, down the road and or some different type of kind of involvement that parents expect with their uh, traditional system. So for the first time they saw how education was taking place or not taking place because their kids were at home uh, on Zoom. Yeah, I wanna ask a, a little bit more and just push on the theory of the case here. So, um, I, and I wanna talk about what we know about sort of enrollments in a minute. And I know that's through a glass darkly because I myself in my day job uh, basically run data on these things. And believe me, it can be frustrating to get uh, current data on, on school numbers. And you should try assessments. But nonetheless, I digress. Um, my question is about the theory of the case about how COVID has placed pressure on sort of the political systems that can either pull on the brakes or open uh, up the throttle on uh, uh, allowing more schools of choice to open or to allowing the current schools of choice or, or, or choice mechanisms to sort of grow. And before we get to exactly where that expansion seems to have been most at play in the past couple of years, uh, Pat, can you give me your sort of theory about the what is it that COVID has done that has increased the, I, I would guess, parent interest and, and, and popular interest, but also the, the political will behind some of these programs? Sure, Nat. So, you know, the, the previous sort of social compact involving the public school district and parents was, you know, you drop your child off in the morning, we're going to take care of their education during the day and send them home in the late afternoon. And the pandemic just totally 
disrupted that arrangement. Uh, the children were at home, their parents were, were caring for them, looking after them, helping them get access to the remote instruction that the district was providing. And so that put a heavy burden on parents and the parents also realized that they weren't terribly impressed or satisfied with some of the instruction that was being provided to their students, both in terms of sort of the level of challenge and engagement, and sometimes in terms of sort of the value base um, of some of the lessons uh, being, being conveyed to them. So it really um, instigated greater interest by parents in the education their child was receiving and a level of disappointment with parents in the kind of education that they were receiving. And so they were eager to find alternatives. Now, in, in some states with, with existing private school choice programs, you know, those, those alternatives were available and that put a lot of pressure on legislatures to expand those programs. But in other states where they didn't exist, parents really came together and started demanding them. We saw uh, the growth of new parent groups surrounding school choice, the parents' union, um, other, other, other organized groups that came together to advocate for private school choice. We also saw an increase in public support through public opinion polling uh, for private school choice and also for public charter schools. So I think all those factors, I mean, as a political scientist, you know, you look at that, you look, you look at, at, at organiza the organization of interests around an issue, and you look at public opinion uh, polling as two major forces that push on the policymaking machinery to enact and expand programs. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense, especially when you look at some of these um, sort of other forms of education that we're not as much talking about today. And I'll just think about like learning pods, but especially homeschool. And you look at the polling numbers on those and it suggests, well, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, a desire for private school choice in particular, or we're looking for more charter schools specifically, but largely uh, interest in a, a diversity of other options. Nina, can you give us uh, your take on, on Pat's theory of the case? Anything to, to add? No, I agree with Patrick, but um, just to focus a little bit more on charter schools, one of the key things that the pandemic also revealed um, were the imperfections of these centralized bureaucracies uh, and their inability to adjust to the changing uh, climate that the pandemic was creating. And so normally when you have <clears throat> centralized bureaucracies with a command and control uh, set of levers that you can pull when something bad happens, you can make things happen much faster. But what happened in our case in a lot of these school districts was two things. First of all, to the extent they had connections to the teachers unions and had contracts with union collective bargaining um, units, they weren't able to get these teachers to do certain things until they were fully trained. And also their overly regulated infrastructure made them um, more cautious when it came to making decisions quickly. Uh, I remember a news story out of Oregon, because Oregon has a number of online charter schools. Um, so this news story was basically centered around the fact that they had basically put a stop to online learning until they got guidance from the federal government in terms of making sure that they were serving the needs of special needs students properly. Um, but they were also telling 
online charter schools, which have been doing this consistently for a long time, that they couldn't offer these services. So those are kind of the flaws in the equation that surfaced. And for the first time, parents noticed it across the country at once. Um, so yeah, when you look at the charter school sector, their early response was very positive. And the reason it was positive is because you know, the, the command and control structure is decentralized. You have a principal who's making decisions in real time without having to check with the centralized bureaucracy. And they're also schools of choice. They have to respond to the needs of families. If the families are not happy with what they're getting, they can go somewhere else. And so that structure, that combination of, you know, entrepreneurial spirit of the charter movement, the fact that they're not so regulated that they can't quickly course correct, and the fact that their schools of choice helped them pivot faster and offer customized education, which a lot of parents uh, wanted at the time and continue to see. So this all makes sense and it's fairly COVID focused, but I don't wanna ignore the other competing things that might be playing into these decisions. You can't go three days uh, looking on the Washington Post and the New York Times and not see another story about CRT in schools and so forth. There's been a lot of furor over that, and I sometimes think that it's, uh, you know, a tempest in a teapot, and other times think that it's really having effects. Pat, how much do you think these sort of curricular struggles, these questions over what public schools are teaching and what they should be teaching are fueling the, the increased interest in school choice options? Well, Nat, I mean, I think it's related to a point that Nina just made about the education establishment and the idea of sort of a one-size-fits-all standardized approach to education. That doesn't work for all students, and it also demands sort of one-size-fits-all in terms of the values that are being inculcated in the children in those schools. And so a public school has to determine a sort of single value system and value message that it's going to convey to a diverse set of, of students and, and families. And I think that's what we're seeing now with a lot of these disputes over, over uh, curriculum um, in terms of gender identity, in terms of critical race theory and how we teach about race and racism in our history and in our culture. And, and parents have different views uh, of the nuances of those kinds of value-based um, uh, lessons being, being uh, inculcated in their, in their children. And, and that's, that's raised a lot of concerns among parents about if the values being conveyed in the classroom are fully consistent with and reinforce the values uh, in the home that they that they want their their children to embrace. So it's it's certainly part of the whole process and part of the motivation for school choice. I don't think it's 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 carrying most of the water on this, but it's it's certainly playing a role. Nina, I, I wonder how this interplays with charters. I mean, you know, just my sense of it would be that a lot of private school choice programs may be more connected to these issues than charters, but maybe I'm wrong. What's your thought on this? Well, look, when asked this question, we usually point to examples of charter schools uh, that are meeting the needs of LGBTQ students and schools that are meeting the needs of the more conservative um, sets of families who want a more, a more classical model and 
you know, our answer is usually if you want to address these issues, you need to create more options within the public system, smaller schools that meet the unique needs of the, the families rather than, again, a big one size fits all model um, that, you know, will cause these types of divisions. But the other thing I'll just say, because I'm here in Virginia, is it also, it has opened the door to this discussion around transparency, because if the idea is that these are like talking about racism, and it's, it comes in the forms of critical race theory, but none of these schools are teaching CRT the way it's, you know, supposed to be taught, of course, but there are these other things that teachers are doing in the classroom that are raising questions at home. Um, and I think the answer to that, quite frankly, is I, schools need to involve parents and educate them along the way. If there is a shift in favor of making some changes in your curriculum um, that you're making without explaining yourself, I think it's going to be that much more difficult to get parental buy-in in conservative settings. And uh, so in that respect, I think the dialogue and the transparency is going to be really important so that it doesn't appear as if schools are making decisions on their own without any kind of parental consent or input. But again, as I said earlier, I think one of the reasons I love being in the charter school movement is that, you know, depending on the community that you're in, you can create schools that fit the unique needs of families. And increasingly, I was just speaking with Robin Lake, one of the things that she uh, keeps hearing when she's talking to different communities about uh, education is the fact that families seem to just want schools that fit the unique needs of their kids. And the more you can customize and offer an education that fits those needs, the better. And I think some of these cultural issues uh, can be folded into that. So we talked a, a little um, bit about the growth that we've seen, but sort of like a, you know, big picture perspective. And I'm wondering about the contours of this growth. So Pat, I'll start with you. Private school choice legislation is sort of, uh, you know, belongs to certain subsets of the states and uh, isn't considered very much at all in others. Uh, in terms of the growth that we saw in the past, you know, year or two, where has it been concentrated sort of geographically? And if I can just lay one other thing over that, how much of it has been expansion of existing programs and how much of it has been, uh, you know, blazing new trails and entirely new programs? Sure. So currently there are 30 states plus the District of Columbia and the Territory of Puerto Rico that have at least one private school choice program uh, within their boundaries. So it's, it's a clear majority of the states. Um, recently, new enactments have mainly been in Southern states, but not exclusively. Uh, four years ago, Illinois, one of the bluest of blue states, enacted a private school choice program. So, so it's, not, it's not just uh, in the conservative South uh, that this is happening. Recently, uh, there have been more expansions than, than new states coming on board, and that's, that's because there now is a substantial set of, of states that have experience in private school choice and want to expand and refine the existing programs. Um, before the pandemic, so, so if we go back to around 2019, there were about 600,000 students 
uh, served by the private school choice programs across the country. Now that number is over 800,000. So there has been a, a, a pretty substantial increase, increase of about a third in the number of students served by private school choice programs over the last couple of years. A few other important trends is the shapes of these programs uh, are trending toward maximum flexibility for parents. That comes in the form of education savings accounts or ESAs, which allow parents to use a portion of the resources that would be spent on their child in traditional public schools, use those resources not only for private school tuition, but also for tutoring, for therapies, for textbooks and, and um, uh, online programs and, and software programs that are educationally based. Basically any expense that a child might incur to deliver and enhance their education. Those can be financed through ESA. So it, it gives parents maximum flexibility. And all three of the new states that joined the school choice set this last year Kentucky, Missouri, and West Virginia opted for ESAs as the form of their choice programs. Two out of the three opted for tax credits as the funding mechanism. And that's been another trend we've seen is policymakers tending to prefer that these programs be funded on the tax side with minimal direct involvement of government as opposed to uh, with a government appropriation through the voucher form. So tax credit ESAs is, is kind of the way that, that, the, um, that the policies are going right now. Uh, the, that's kind of the hot form and design for, for these. And, and they, give, they give parents maximum flexibility. So Pat, before I go to Nina on, on the charter landscape, uh, which state is the front runner? Which state, so listeners have a little, uh, you know, something to say at a cocktail party. Which is the state that really just has, is on the forefront in terms of this is the highest percentage of private school choice uh, utilization across the country? So that would be Florida, Nat. They have, uh, I think, about 125,000 Florida students are participating in one of the private school choice programs there. And recently they consolidated and expanded a lot of their programs. So they were an expansion state in this last year. Um, that, you know, that's a lot of students. When you think about around 800,000 students are, are receiving uh, support in private schools through choice programs right now, one out of seven of those kids is in Florida. Uh, and we've also seen, Matt Ladner's done some great work on this. We've also seen that the NAEP scores for students in Florida have been trending way up as uh, private school choice has expanded in the state, and especially the scores for uh, Hispanic students and other historically disadvantaged subpopulations of students in Florida. So, so Florida's killing it in terms of school choice, in terms of NAEP gains, especially for disadvantaged kids. They are the biggest success story so far on the private school choice horizon. So Nina, let me get to you on charters. What's been sort of the shape of, of the growth? Where have we seen the most growth? And again, I guess for, for charters, since it's not as much legislation dependent, and it was pretty hard to open a new school in the past <laughs> year and a half, um, 
What's the nature of that expansion been? Um, in terms of sheer growth, um, Florida, Texas, and California are the ones that have grown the most. Really, California is the leader in terms of uh, the number of schools and students over the years. Despite all the problems that California has suffered from a political standpoint, it continues to lead the trend. In terms of what happened during the pandemic, we definitely saw huge improvements or growth in states like Oklahoma, which has a big online charter presence states like Pennsylvania. Um, but we also saw increases in enrollment in states that don't have an online charter presence. So that's a really important point for us because um, to the extent you benefited from an online charter school, chances are you're not going to want to keep your kid in a full-time online program because you want them to leave the house and go back to, to school eventually. So, uh, But the fact that we saw an uptick in enrollment across the board in every single state, um, except for Illinois, interestingly enough, um, indicates to us that the, the numbers are going to hold. Just overall, though, let me give this to your listeners, we have a little over 7,500 public charter schools around the country serving about 3.5 million students right now. Um, and as I said earlier, uh, we saw about a quarter million increase in the 2020-21 school year. And we will release the numbers from the 21-22 school year um, later on this year. So it usually, we wait until the U.S. Department of Education produces some numbers and the states gather this information themselves in order to do um, our kind of magic or work our magic to, to, uh, to release the information so we don't have fresh data from the current school year yet. So let's talk a little bit about en enrollments. I mean, You've both mentioned north of 200,000 students in private school choice programs. I think, Nina, you said it was 240,000 in, in charters. That, that, that's a big chunk of students. And we, I also know that part of what you have to talk about is the exodus from traditional public schools, and those numbers don't really match up. So maybe one and a quarter million students might have departed traditional public schools during the pandemic. So I have a couple of questions here. Uh, one is just sort of how much of the losses in traditional public schools that we've seen are due to switchers moving from traditional public schools to private uh, choice options or private schools, period, without a choice option or to a charter? And, and then do we have any sense of how much of that uh, decline in traditional public school students might be attributable to the, you know, the, the huge bulk of them who are in pre-K and K who might have just been sort of kept back until hopefully some sort of normalcy returned. Nina? Yeah, we get this question a lot. If they were not in a charter or a private setting, chances are they were being homeschooled. And we do, if you look at the census data, they saw a huge uptick in homeschooling among Black families. Um, so we'll see if those homeschooling numbers hold. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, I do think some are keeping their kids home or delaying pre-K, kindergarten, and those years. Uh, because eventually, if I were a parent, I'd want my kid to end up somewhere. So I can't imagine um, you know, these numbers holding. But it is uh, interesting, or at least to us, to see what the numbers look like going forward, especially after this school year is over. 
And Nina, just particular to charters, because, uh, you know, in, in Florida and other states, there are online charter schools that would make a lot of sense to a lot of parents when they were saying, uh, I'm not sure schools are going to be open this year. Or even if schools are open, I want my kid to be at home because I'm nervous about COVID. How much of the increase in enrollments do you think is going to be in that particular online charter sector as opposed to, you know, moving to a different charter school, uh, you know, brick and mortar school that may have more staying power after the pandemic recedes, which I have scheduled for it to recede in February, but we'll see if it pays attention to, uh, to my schedule. Well, the short answer is we don't know. We haven't surveyed to find out exactly um, what what the reasonings are and what parents are doing, especially this past school year. But we do think that to the extent they left the system to go to a full-time virtual and their regular school opened, chances are they went back to the regular school. Um, because if you're going back to work and you have a student who's not able to stay home by themselves, you're gonna to have to put them somewhere. So there's the custodial care aspect of this that needs to factor in it eventually. But I actually talked to a lot of people who for the first time last year, pulled their kids out of the public school system that they were in to put them in a K-12 run school in different parts of the country because those online charters have been doing this consistently for a while. and you know, when all said and done, having a full-time virtual or a full-time in-person is preferable to doing it in the hybrid format, which a lot of schools were trying to experiment with. I think doing it in the hybrid fashion is taxing on the teachers. And if you don't have an equal split and know what you're doing, uh, it is easy to ignore certainly the kids who are present in your classroom. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but um, it's definitely something that we are studying as we go along. Sure. And waiting for that good data to come in. Uh, Pat, the same question for you. I mean, what, what kind of sense do you get as far as the shifting uh, markets? Sure. So a uh, little over a year ago, Nat, I prepared a paper for the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Uh, summarizing the state of play on private school choice and doing a deep dive into the private school sector. Um, I learned a lot of interesting things. I mean, one thing is the participation, the enrollment of fee-paying private school students has been trending down for 20 years in the United States. Um, just as the uh, expansion of private school choice uh, has, has increased. And so basically what you see, the last data uh, I had was, was the year 2017. We had about you know, 5.6 million students enrolled in private school that year, and about 560,000 of them were enrolled with the support of a private school choice program. So you, know, you can do the math pretty easily there. It's 10% of the private school sector in 2017 was supported by school choice initiatives. Uh, only 90% was fee paying. I mean, that's a, that's a major chunk of the private schooling sector that is being supported by these programs. It has only increased since then. And other trends that uh, Dick Murnane and his colleagues at, at Harvard uncovered in some of their uh, research 
is that the composition of the private school sector is changing too. Uh, basically, the proportion of the private school sector that is high-income kids is, has been pretty stable over time. And the proportion of the private school sector that is low-income kids has also been stable over time and has been dramatically uh, supported by these school choice programs. Where the private school sector is losing students is middle class. They've been, they've been hemorrhaging middle-class students because tuition just isn't uh, affordable anymore for a lot of middle-class families. And many of them uh, don't qualify for private school choice programs. The newer brands of private school choice programs are trying to reach those families and are expanding income eligibility for those programs um, in a way that is going to help the private school sector uh, uh, withstand the pandemic um, and the loss of middle-income students uh, during this period and hopefully come out the back end uh, stronger, uh, more diverse, and, and more supported. So Pat and Nina, we're, we're, we're almost out of time. I want to sort of end looking forward a little bit. You know, we've talked a good bit about how COVID has um, made some serious differences, uh, both sort of in the, the enrollments and also in uh, sort of the, the legislative uh, and regulatory environments on these things. My question is, what happens when the music stops? I mean, if COVID has been goosing these things, if it's been spurring interest in these, how worried are you that we could be seeing a surge now only to see a plateau later? And what are the, the sort of uh, barriers that there might be to um, expanding these school choice options moving forward? Nina? Yeah, I think the numbers are going to hold in most places, and I actually think that um, the pressure that the system has been under for the past two years uh, is kind of shifting public sentiments in a way where they don't want to go back to how things were, and they're more kind of aware of the, you know, dynamics of, you know, a traditional system that is overly bureaucratic and not able to make corrections very quickly and also when they look at you know after all the money that the federal government disseminated the fact that some schools are still talking about closing down because they're afraid of sending teachers to the classroom those types of discussions are no longer happening on their own I think the public in general is more aware and wants to make sure that schools are operating in a certain way. So the expectations certainly have gone up. Uh, in terms of the shifts, as I indicated, we saw a lot last year, we're gonna to continue to see a lot of movement this year in state legislatures in response to parental demand. There's definitely a hunger by lawmakers to address and do something about this. And charters are in a good place because you can still make these options available in the public sphere. But in terms of long-term shifts, um, something happened in discussions around pods and, you know, pods and micro schools were the flavor of the month before the pandemic hit, but they definitely, uh, certainly pods became more popular and discussed. And so uh, looking into the future, I do think there's going to be more of a shift in coming up with smaller settings where teachers can experiment and, you know, meet the unique needs of the kids 
in their systems uh, and potentially you know, different ways of doing education in a way that, again, they learned some of it during the pandemic, but it's opened the door or wet the appetite uh, for more, uh, I don't like to use the term experimentation, but more um, innovation and more um, creativity in the classroom. Uh, I think the focus on mental health and the socio-emotional health of kids is one of those things that again existed before but wasn't discussed that as much. The pandemic certainly uncovered a lot, not just for low-income students, but also for you know literally every kid in the system and the teachers in the system. So I think the stigma attached to asking for help uh, and mental health support certainly is no longer in place. I don't see that changing. And the more schools can you know make access to a school. Um, psychiatrist or a counselor uh, as easy as accessing the school nurse that ultimately will benefit um, every kid and, and every student in the school system. Um, so I see some of these things staying and I definitely think the more customized approach to learning is here to stay. Pat, what about you? Yeah, so Nina and I have been in this business for over two decades now, and one thing we've definitely learned is choice begets choice. It's, it's sort of a one-way ratchet. I mean, once you give more parents more opportunities to choose their child's school and, and, and choose from among distinctive uh, educational offerings, more of them want more of that. Um, and so I think the, the expansion of choice instigated by the pandemic is going to endure. Um, and if anything, I think it's likely to, to feed on itself. I mean, obviously, look at Virginia. There's going to be expansions of school choice in Virginia, for sure. Look at some of the other states where governors use the pandemic spending to support educational alternatives, like, like Idaho. I think Idaho, there's going to be action there. We might finally get Texas in the private school choice uh, column. Uh, so I, 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 I don't. I think as the pandemic wanes, uh, the the hunger for school choice is going to to persist. Um, so on the private school choice side, the main barriers before us are legal challenges. In fact, I just heard an hour ago that a group has issued a lawsuit against the West Virginia private school choice program, the most expansive and universal one in the country, uh, in an attempt to stop it from being launched. Uh, similarly, the Kentucky program, this Kentucky's first school choice program enacted this year also has been stayed by a judge. So governors and legislatures are looking more favorably at private school choice, enacting and expanding more programs. Opponents are turning to sort of the non-democratic um, uh, branch of the American government, the judiciary, to challenge these programs on legal grounds. I suspect uh, very few of these challenges are going to succeed. The Supreme Court made it very clear in the Espinoza case uh, a little over a year ago, that these school choice programs can be constitutional. They need to include 
religious schools, and it's entirely appropriate for them to do so. So I think the, the opponents who are taking the legal route, which increasingly they are, just have, have fewer uh, arrows in their quiver in order to win those cases. I think the, the effect it's going to have is just to delay implementation, uh, to deny access to these programs to eligible kids um, for a certain period of time until the court cases are resolved. And I think they will be resolved in favor of the school choice programs. Pat Wolf, Nina Reese, thanks for coming on the report card to talk about the year of school choice. Thank you, Nat. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Nina Reese and Pat Wolf. I'd also like to thank our producer, Wesley Armstrong. He makes this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. You can send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Matt Malkus.